0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy. I wanted
0: to pick your brain on the Trump
2: Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 1st. Today, how President Trump's photo op with Kim Jong-un could shape relations with North Korea why airlines want to scan your face, and the persistent myths about only children. At 3.45 p.m. local time on Sunday, President Trump made history by becoming the first sitting U.S. president to step foot into North Korea. I've never to meet you at this place.
3: The president comes out of the Freedom House, which is on the South Korea side of the DMZ, and walks slowly, kind of building that moment, building that tension. Sungmin Kim covers the White House for The Post. She was
0: traveling with the president, and she was one of the reporters who witnessed this moment firsthand.
3: So he reaches to the demarcation line, this little concrete barrier that separates the two Koreas. And Kim Jong-un is on there on the other side, kind of gesturing and noting through an interpreter that said, come over here, you'd be the first sitting president trying to stroke his ego in that sense. So obviously, uh, the president accepts that invitation, steps over and continues to walk with Kim several steps onto the North Korean side on North Korean soil and then turns back, looks at the rest of us and just kind of takes in that moment, like giving us that photo op. So when this moment actually happened,
0: what was the dynamic like between them?
3: I mean, the president treats Kim Jong-un as he treats so many other of these authoritarian leaders. He was incredibly friendly, called him my friend. It's an honor to be here. And you just can't lose sight of the fact of the kind of leader that Kim Jong-un is and that the president is dousing him with all this flattery and all these warm words. So the dynamic between them does seem very good and very warm. And that relationship is something that the president really prides himself on. And not just that relationship with him, but also his relationship with Vlad. Vladimir Putin, his relationship with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who were other key meetings that we watched um, at the G20 in Osaka. And he really takes pride in those relationships. We questioned him at a press conference. I mean, what appeal do you find in these authoritarian leaders and why are you friends with them? And he just says... I'm friends with everyone. That's what I do. Remember the fact though about how often he's fought with our allies, too. But that's that's just something that is appealing to him.
0: And since this meeting with Kim Jong-un, part of the way that President Trump has justified this is by telling reporters that that he has made big progress in the
3: denuclearization of North Korea. Is that true? Not really. And he knew that this was something that was going to be raised by the press. Because if you rewind a little bit and figure out where things were left off at the Hanoi summit in February, there is this fundamental disagreement between the two sides over the lifting of economic sanctions over um, basically the North dismantling its nuclear program. And there has been no substantive, at least public, progress in the last four months on whether uh, those two sides have resolved those differences. And remember, North Korea has test fired missiles in the time since. But the president seemed really kind of touchy and sensitive about that point. So because so much of the trip um, and so much of the trip to the DMZ, which was jarring, was him spent uh, complaining about the press coverage, about his progress or the lack thereof on these talks with North Korea. But if you look at what happened after yesterday, and we're still trying to figure out what happened in the private meeting with Kim Jong-un and him. But it looks like all he got out of the meeting was a commitment to restart talks again, which isn't really a win here.
0: Well, so then if by having this meeting, there was no real tangible progress or promises made by North Korea in the process, then why Why is President Trump calling this a win or why is this meeting with Kim Jong-un so politically beneficial for him?
3: Well, he first of all, he believes it's a win and he wants to frame it as a win. and He's trying to push the narrative that it was a victory. And look, as long as they are talking in a more diplomatic fashion, as long as the tensions are down, like we don't go back to the fire and fury days of uh, 2017, I think we can all agree that's a good thing for the American people and for the world. However, there has to be some sort of a takeaway here especially in these high stakes meetings i mean there are previous presidents that had discussed sit downs with north the various north korean leaders and they don't grant those because of the propaganda value that you grant and the legitimacy that you grant leaders of north korea and um our colleague in beijing anna Fifield, tweeted some images of how this uh, how this is playing how essentially kim jong un is able to use this as a propaganda victory cuz he is standing next to the leader of the free world who is calling him his friend, that it's an honor to visit him. So you have to think about the implications on that end as well. Do you think President Trump is
0: worried about those implications? Or does he see this as having benefits for him politically?
3: let's be, you know, blunt, this is all about him. He wanted to make that history. He, again, for some reason, cozies up to these types of leaders. So I don't know what we're going to be looking for, or what's going to happen in the next several months. What I did think was interesting was that in the post-meeting, a uh, brief press conference that he had with reporters after he met with uh, Kim Jong-un, he stressed that he was not in a rush. He was not in a rush for a third formal summit with Kim. He was not in a rush. I mean, he was excited to get the talks going again, but not in a rush to reach a solution at this point. He just kind of wanted to let it go organically. So you do wonder what his goal is here, especially when, again, we hadn't seen any substantive development towards resolving that fundamental dispute between the two sides.
0: It strikes me that this is all happening while we simultaneously have these escalating tensions in the Gulf with Iran that are not going well, and that this is a way that people are focusing on President Trump's quote-unquote, progress with North Korea versus what's happening in Iran. Do you think that was part of his calculus in, in pushing so hard to have this happen?
3: I think a lot of um, what the president does is deflecting from the problem of the day or the controversy of the day, and he has been a master at that in many respects. But what I found interesting too, and this was uh remember, this was this was not necessarily in the context of Iran, but it really struck me what he had said earlier in the day in Seoul, where he was talking to a group of business leaders, and he said, People think I'm a warmonger. I'm actually not a warmonger, which first of all puts him at uh puts him in a little bit of a contrast with some of the more hawkish members of his own administration, of his of his White House staff. But it shows you that, you know, in all these hot spots across the globe, the president, while he wants to look tough, he also does not want to engage in extended military confrontations, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, That is not something that he campaigned on. He campaigned on kind of extricating the United States from that. So it remains to be seen how he's going to respond to these escalating tensions, particularly the ones that we saw earlier this morning, because On Iran, he has also indicated that he's kind of in no rush either. So that's a really interesting tension that we're seeing with with Trump within the administration um, about kind of that balance between, you know, him as a hawk and him as a dove.
0: Sung Min Kim covers the White House for The Post.
2: There was a lot of show with this third meeting, uh, but beyond that, there really has been no change whatsoever in terms of where we stand with North Korea's nuclear program.
0: Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. She recently published a new book on the North Korean leader.
2: So the hard work uh, of denuclearization still lies ahead of everyone here. And that is going to be very, very difficult indeed, because Kim Jong-un has shown no sign of wanting to give up or being willing to give up his nuclear program. And that's something that the US has been insisting upon uh, all this time. All along, Kim Jong-un has clearly been wanting this diplomatic process to continue, to resume. We saw that with the beautiful love letter he sent to Donald Trump on the anniversary of, uh, their Singapore summit. The visit by President Xi Jinping of China to North Korea last month could also be seen as, uh, viewed as a sign that things were heating up again. These visits have happened in advance of American summits before. So I think from Kim Jong Un's perspective, he really does want to embark on this process of diplomatic engagement of normalization because he wants sanctions relief. He desperately wants sanctions relief because now having developed a credible nuclear program, he's really turning to the economy. He wants to develop the economy, uh, not to open it necessarily, but to give a sense to the people that uh, life is improving under his, you know, wise leadership. So he can't do that while these crippling sanctions remain in place.
0: Anna Fifield is the Beijing
1: bureau chief for the first. I heard that at airports all over the US, when people were boarding the airplane, they started to be asked to have their face scanned before they did that. I was like, what? This sounds a lot like kind of what we either saw in, you know, some dystopian science fiction films or have heard about is going on in China, but this is happening in the US. So I had to kind of go see it for myself. This is our tech columnist, Jeffrey Fowler. A big part of his job is to re-examine
0: how we live with technology. So he went to New York's JFK Airport, where JetBlue is one of the airlines that's already using facial recognition to scan passengers at the gate before they board their flights. There's this
1: booth, and you kind of step into it, and it takes a picture of your face. Sometimes three photographs if they don't get the, the first one right. And then it's sending those photographs of your face to a government database where the government has its own photos of Americans and travelers to the U.S. And they're trying to look for a match between them. So Jeff writes this
0: story about what his experience was using this technology, what other people thought about
1: it, its potential benefits and pitfalls. And then a couple hours after my my story published on the post website, I get a call from customs, the government agency that's running this program, and they said, "Oh, remember how you asked us if we'd ever been hacked? Turns out they had been, and they were in the process of telling Congress about it, and that's why they hadn't told me earlier. But in fact, One of those worst case scenarios that I feared that people's faces had been stolen had already happened. So what does it mean
0: that they lost all of this data? Like, what is the worst case
1: scenario here? The worst case scenario for the people who were affected, and they say that in this case, about 100,000 people were affected, is that somebody has a database with their faces. and, And in this case, we learned was also license plate numbers, because this particular breach happened with a government subcontractor who was working on one of the facial recognition programs at a land border. But it's all the same database as um, and all the same systems as being used at airports as well. Um, so in this case, for those 100,000 people, um, that means somebody has their face. We don't know who. We don't know who they might sell it to. Uh, we don't know um, how that might be used in the future. But you could imagine that, let's say, a um, a, a country that was hostile towards the U.S. Uh, was able to get their hands on a big database like this, they could use it to surveil American citizens, right? Because they would have the keys, they would have the, the sort of layout of, of Americans' faces that they could then apply to other photographs or other video surveillance that, that they might get their hands on. In this case... The custom says they don't believe that the names of people were associated with the photos that were stolen, but that could just as easily have happened. So it was really a big warning call to all of us that this is something we need to take really seriously because facial recognition isn't just a technology, it's a superpower. And do we have the right systems in place, the right laws in place, just the right ideas in place to, to really deal with it?
0: And so what is the government saying about why they're doing it and why they're collecting all these photos of people? Is it because of security or just because it's more convenient for people going through the airport if they don't have to stop and show their passport everywhere they go?
1: This is the most interesting question to me uh, because I really the reason I went to JFK airport to try this is I really wanted to understand what we were getting out of it. I think the assumption by a lot of people at the airport is that this is about security, right? I mean airports are already filled with all of these ways in which you know our our physical bodies get kind of assaulted by the airport experience. you know you got to be searched, you got to take off your shoes, you got to do all this stuff. So people presumed, well, this is about security, and if it makes me safer, I'll accept it. But that's actually not the case here. The people who are boarding an airplane have already been searched by security. You've already gone through the metal detector and the other detectors. They've searched your bags. Your name and other biographical details have already been checked against, you know, do not fly lists and other things. So you're already cleared to be on this flight. So then what's going on? This is really actually about immigration enforcement. Hmm. So it turns out that uh, the U.S. Customs wants to find people who have visas to be in the U.S. but overstay them. And they say that sometimes people do this by sending somebody else to leave the country under their name. And so using systems to check for fake visa holders as they leave the country might might stop some of this. So I asked customs, so how big is this problem that we're solving with this very you know, controversial and invasive new technology? And they said about 1% of U.S. visa holders overstay. And of those, we don't know how many try this airport trick. And so the question really is, is all of this technology that we really have these questions about and raise these questions, is it really worth a 1% problem?
0: Wait, that That's super surprising to me because my assumption had been that this was this was all about Deterring terrorism or being able to make sure that airlines are adhering with, like, basic identification of passengers. But that this is more of an immigration enforcement thing puts a completely different spin on it. That it's it's not for the benefit of everyone on the plane. It's for the benefit of... Of the government. Exactly.
1: I think the other thing that this is about, and the reason why they've gotten that the US government has gotten airlines to participate in developing this technology and implementing it at airports, is it's about business for airlines. Look, Anybody who's traveled at, the, at an airport over the last couple of decades in the U.S. knows that they're looking for more and more ways to reduce the number of human beings they have to hire to do things, right? Airlines see uh, this technology, see facial recognition as a way to further find efficiencies at the airport. No longer would a human have to check your ID when you dropped off your bag, for example, at uh, bag check. No longer would a human have to check your ID as you're boarding the plane for an international flight, so they say that, look, this is going to be great for consumers as well. It's going to speed everything up. And they can also save money on employees or maybe just reassign those employees to less menial tasks where they can spend more time actually helping us. So again, I ask the question, so how big is the problem that we're really solving with this? How much can we really save? So it turns out at Atlanta's airport, where they've had some of the most extensive programs like this for the longest period of time, they say that doing face scanning speeds up boarding international flights by two seconds per passenger.
0: Oh no, (laughs) that's... That's why. So like in, in the total of even a even a, a very booked flight, you're looking at maybe a, a four minute total savings on
1: onboarding time for everyone. They said up to nine minutes uh, for everybody altogether. But here's the other thing that I think we really need to, need to talk about here. It's that. So how well does this technology work? Because there have been a lot of studies that show that the current state of facial recognition technology doesn't work as well on people with darker skin, doesn't work as well on women. If the system doesn't recognize you, you get booted to a separate line, right, where you then have to be checked by a human being. So are we putting in place systems that might discriminate against people at the airport? I think that's also a very dangerous and real possibility, too. Which
0: is funny because that is already an issue at the airport where people are discriminated against and certain types of people tend to be pulled aside for extra security screening, but that this will just further
1: reinforce this through technology. Exactly. And again, I kept asking, wait a minute, why are we doing this? There's the danger of having our data stolen. You know, this isn't really solving that big of a security problem for the United States. And it doesn't seem to be speeding up things that much for the airlines. So maybe we really need to hang on for a minute and really understand this technology before we, we bring it to the airport.
0: Well, let me ask this. Are average people buying this argument that this is all about making the consumer's life easier and that this is all about security and convenience at the airport?
1: Sadly, I think most consumers are buying into it. The airlines and uh, government officials say they get very few complaints, very few people saying they want to opt out. And that makes sense with what I saw at the airport at JFK as well. I'm sitting there and I'm talking to people waiting to get in line. And one lady said to me, you know, I don't care if the government needs to strip me down naked <laughs> to uh, if it's going to get me onto this plane faster and make it safer, I'll do it. I think it's a post-9-11 world. Many Americans sort of think that way. But I think that's dangerous. And in my column, I called it a convenience trap. This is that we're being sort of tricked into accepting technology that's really, really, really invasive and has all of these problems that we haven't worked out yet. We don't really have laws to cover you know, in exchange for something that isn't really worth it to us. Jeff Fowler is a tech columnist for The Post.
4: now, one more thing. It is just so deeply culturally ingrained, this idea that there's just something a little bit odd, narcissistic, self-involved, probably not great at sharing. They're just, you know, isolated little weirdos.
0: Caitlin Gibson writes about parenting and families for The Post. And recently, she's been writing about only children and how they're misunderstood.
4: Even though it's becoming more and more common in the U.S. to have just one kid. Statistically, we were starting to see a rise in the number of families that were choosing to stop at just one. Since the mid-70s,
0: the percentage of women who finish their childbearing years with just one child has actually doubled.
4: Sometimes it's a choice. They go into it very consciously sure that they want to have just one child. Sometimes it's more of a situational thing. People are starting their families later. Women are spending more time investing in their careers. And so when you have your first child at 37 or 38, not everyone feels like it's such a priority to have a second kid that they're going to go to the ends of the earth to make that happen.
0: This idea that only children tend to be more narcissistic
4: or more self-involved or more isolated, where did that come from? It really originates with one person. His name is Granville Stanley Hall. He was the preeminent child psychology expert of the late 19th century, and he conducted this study, quote-unquote, in 1896, which was a survey of what he called at the time peculiar and exceptional children. And it was incredibly unscientific. It was not done in any way that modern research would recognize as credible. For example...
0: Many of the kids that he interviewed lived on farms in rural areas where they were totally isolated. And because they had no siblings to share the workload, they were responsible for huge amounts of manual labor every day. A situation
4: that would make any kid unhappy. So those kids are not at all representative of children today who might be in daycare at the time that they're six months old and are being raised around all kinds of other kids. But it led him to very famously declare that being an only child is disease in itself. And really from that one idea and that one survey, that is a stereotype that has just persisted.
0: Modern child psychologists have totally debunked this study. But this ongoing stereotype about children without siblings, it's something that Caitlin feels invested in pushing back against because she's an only child. And so am I. Do you get that thing where people ask you all the time, like, what was it like to be an only child?
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Friends of mine who are in a place where they're deciding whether they want to have one or two kids will often ask me how I felt about being an only child. And what do you say? I really liked being an only child. I had a great relationship with both my parents and I, you know, I liked being by myself for the story I spoke with our former U.S. poet laureate, Billy Collins, who has very famously talked about being an only child and wrote a great poem about it. And he talked about how he liked being in his sort of private imaginary places when he was a kid. And that's how I felt, too. I also didn't have any trouble making friends. I feel like, especially as an adult, I have kind of supplemented the lack of siblings by finding other people who I love that much. I mean, I love them like they're my blood family for whatever, you know, DNA means as far as family goes. And, So for me, it was a pretty good experience. I remember when I was a kid and I would tell friends or they'd ask me if I
0: had any brothers or sisters and I'd say, no, I'm an only child. And they'd be like, oh, you're so lucky. (laughs) I hate my brother. I hate my sister. I wish I were an only child. You must get all of your parents' attention. And now in adulthood, I feel like when I talk about being an only child, people are more likely to respond with a sense of either curiosity or concern, Mm -hmm. either about like, oh, did being an only child kind of mess you up as a kid? But now more often about taking care of parents and getting older and imagining an
4: adulthood where you don't have any siblings to rely on. It's funny because when we say lonely only, culturally we've been taught to think that we're referring to a child. But I actually kind of wonder if maybe that fits more the grown only child. And when I say lonely, I don't mean in terms of your social circle, really, but more this idea that when your parents are gone, if you're an only child, you are now the sole carrier of memory for a once young family. And that's a really intense thing. Um, And so being an adult looking at that. Yeah, I do have different feelings about what it means to be an only now than I did as a child. I loved it as a child. I loved it as a teen. I, I don't think that children who are raised that way are at any kind of deficit. It's a different question, though, when you think about what it means as an adult.
0: Caitlin Gibson covers families, children, and parenting for The Post. That's it for today's show. Follow me on Twitter, I'm at Martine Powers, for more extras and behind-the-scenes info from the show. Today, I'm sharing the audio of Caitlin Gibson reading U.S. Poet Laureate Billy Collins' poem, Only Child. It's lovely, and it's worth taking a listen. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode is sponsored by the Aquarius Project podcast from the Adler Planetarium.
2: When a meteor crashed in a great lake, these Chicago
0: teenagers... Is this actually going to, like, go somewhere? ...joined forces with scientists...
4: I specialize in asteroids... ...to
0: find a way to hunt for space rocks...
4: ...the so-called small
1: bodies of the solar system...
0: ...200 feet underwater.
1: It's not impossible. It's, there's not a 0% chance.
0: From the Adler Planetarium, the Aquarius Project podcast...
1: Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.